Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 85, in honor of my friend, Chad Ochocinco Johnson, and in honor of my old friend, Jack Youngblood, one of my all-time favorite interviews. He now of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, a man who was the leader of one of the first teams I ever covered out here in Los Angeles as a cub reporter for the LA Times, those Los Angeles Rams. This, as always, is the un-undisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour debate show that is undisputed. Today, first up, I will tell you how my Dallas Cowboys who were created by a media master named Texas, actually from Hollywood and Los Angeles, Texas E. Shram, are a shock-a-minute product of media overreaction and motivation. I will explain. And I'm about to answer many, many of your probing, provocative questions about, for instance, why I don't ever go to Cowboy games. Why, right here, right now, I would still take please drop the Mike McCarthy over Bill Belichick as the Cowboy head coach. Why, right here, right now, I'd take Dak Prescott as my Cowboy quarterback over Justin Herbert. Why, I am still leaning Shadour over Caleb Williams even after what happened last weekend. I'll also tell you why I would never, ever, ever wear a tie on air, even if it were a Dallas Cowboy tie. And finally, I will tell you which all-time great movie I wish had been followed by a sequel and was not. But first up, as always... It is not to be skipped. Now, you can call me crazy about this. Keyshawn Johnson, Richard Sherman often do on the new Undisputed. But 
I'm here to tell you, you should come to grips with this phenomenon because historically, the Dallas Cowboys have been products of the media. They have always reacted on the field and especially on the scoreboard to the way the media overreacts to them. I'm going to repeat that sentence. My Cowboys have always reacted on the field and on the scoreboard to the way the media overreacts to them. And trust me on this, no team in sports history has historically inspired more overreaction than the most loved and the most hated team ever, and that is America's team. This happened in 1970 as they were on their way to their first Super Bowl ever, and it is happening right here, right now in 2023. Look at what just happened. Opening night, Sunday night. At Giants, arch rival, playoff team from a year ago, a team that won a playoff game a year ago, a team that gave the money, gave the bag to Daniel Jones. That team that most people had as a playoff team this year got crushed 40 to nothing by my Dallas Cowboys on opening Sunday night at their place. Think about that. It's hard for any NFL team to beat any other NFL team 40 to nothing, and my team did that to them. Followed up by Cowboys 30, Jets 10 at Jerry World. 30 to 10 over a Jets team that's now 3 and 3. Zach Wilson has been pretty good, or at least not bad. That defense is very good. Dallas 30, Jets 10. And what happened after that? It wasn't just Super Bowl, here we come. It was Super Bowl, we're going to win. Media overreaction. It was just a nuclear reaction. That's all I know. And I was right in the middle of it, detonating. Then you know what happened. Arizona happened. It was a home, away from home game out in the Phoenix area against the sorriest team on our schedule, the Arizona Cardinals. They ran the football for 222 yards straight down our throats through our hearts. 222 yards. You remember what Dak Prescott said right after that game to the media? He said, y'all put us on top of the world. We knew who we are. In that sense, the media got what it wanted, said Dak Prescott right after the Arizona loss, 28 to 16. And I'm like, what? Wait a second. So, Dak, you're ripping us? For crowning you? So I, it was the first time I can remember the media got ripped for being too positive about a team. And yet, 
you know what happened. You know what happened on Undisputed that week. The sky fell. Yeah, you could say we built them up and then they got torn down. But Lord have mercy. Keyshawn Johnson, Richard Sherman. They went off and in on my Cowboys. Exposed, overrated, overhyped, garbage, bad football team. Blah, 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 blah. And and I'm like loving it because I've been here and done this so many times for so many years as a diehard, lifelong Dallas Cowboy fan since I was 10 years of age. I know my football team and its history. This is its history coming to life right before your very eyes once again. History is repeating like crazy. And it is craziness. It is madness. It is divine madness because I knew what was coming. Keyshawn and Richard Sherman bet me dinners on Undisputed that here came Bill Belichick with our old friend Ezekiel Elliott. And Bill plus Zeke meant run ball down throat at Jerry World. Dinner, dinner, said Keyshawn Richard with supreme overconfidence. You guys got no chance. You can't stop the run. Hmm. Would you believe the Patriots tried to run the ball 23 times that Sunday at Jerry World and managed 53 total yards? Zeke ran the ball six times that Sunday at Jerry World for a grand total of 16 yards because we're way better than Richard and Keyshawn thought we were. They thought they could bury us. They thought they could dismiss us. They thought they could just get us out of their sight. And all of a sudden, 38-3 to happened. I realized the Patriots look like they have now gotten exposed themselves. But 38 to 3 is still hard to do for any NFL team against any other NFL team. So once again, 40 to nothing, 30 to 10, 38 to 3. And here we went to San Francisco. And here went the overconfidence soaring. Here went the national media saying, you know what? Cowboys are legit, they're really good. This has to be their turn and their time to get even with San Francisco. I'm pounding the desk. We're better than the 49ers. Our defense is better than the 49ers. They aren't more physical than my defense. It's time for revenge or not. My Cowboys fat-cattered all the way out to the Bay Area, spilling over with overconfidence. And they sank right to the very bottom of the Bay. 42-10 to happened. A score that will live 
in cowboy infamy. I've had to say the score so many times on Unspeeded. I am sick to death of that score, 42 to 10. It's the 49ers, so it's, it, it, sh- it should have been 49 to 10. They're not the 42ers. They're the 49ers. 42 to 10. And I had to endure two and a half hours of, you got exposed. You are garbage. You are nothing but a bad football team. I got laughed at for two and a half hours by Keyshawn Johnson and Richard Sherman. It's over. You guys are done. Forget about it. Give it up. Snap out of your delusion. They're just awful. The 49ers just exposed the Dallas Cowboys. They're going to miss the playoffs. That's all I heard for an entire week that built up toward more and more of they're going to lose to the Chargers and it's going to be over. I've been here. I've done this. I've lived this. I am laughing all the way quietly to my dinner bank because I'm like, okay, I'll take a dinner on Dallas this Monday night against the Chargers. Done. Thank you. I'm doing my Zeke eat, eat, eat on the air because I I got this. It was actually a long, amusing week to me because they just don't get how this works, Keyshawn and Richard. They're, they're smart guys. But they, got, they got some football genius about them. Both of them do. Very astute. They get it. They can see it. They can read it. Except when it comes to cowboy history this overreaction phenomenon that has imprisoned my Dallas Cowboys for better and for worse. I warned them both, Keyshawn and Richard, you're going to get game balls after this game because you're doing something my coach cannot do. You are motivating my Cowboys in ways Mike McCarthy never dreamed of motivating anything or anybody. The Dallas Cowboys watch Undisputed, trust me. They see respected players, former superstar receiver Keyshawn Johnson, once the first overall pick in the draft, Richard Sherman, a perennial first-team all-pro defensive back, cornerback, that, that you could make a case as the second greatest cornerback ever. And that's no disrespect to Richard because I'm talking about Deion Sanders here. Richard's at least in the discussion with Darrell Rivas for the second greatest corner ever. We could go on and on on that, but high football IQ, Stanford product, straight out of Compton, Richard Sherman. Highly respected by the current Dallas Cowboys. So they're watching Richard and Keyshawn 
bash them unmercifully, shaming them, torturing them, disemboweling them on air. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Game balls to both of them. My Cowboys' anger is detonated only by what they see on TV or hear by social media. They were buried after San Francisco, shamed, humiliated, disrespected to the quick. Cowboys 20, Chargers 17, right on schedule. Thank you very much. Dinner, dinner. I will give you this. Monday night, they they hit and they missed, but they hit more than they missed. They made the plays that had to be made for them to survive and to prevail, and to climb to four and two heading into their bye week. Fortunately for me, Tuesday on Undisputed, Keyshawn and Richard were not impressed. That's a good thing. Both of them are still calling my Dallas Cowboys a quote-unquote bad football team. I need this. Thank you, God. Richard is still calling my Cowboys a lightweight that beat a lightweight on Monday night. Thank you. I'm telling you this without telling them this, and I'm hoping they don't watch this podcast. I'm talking about Keyshawn and Richard. I desperately need them to keep pouring gasoline on my Cowboys fire because my coach cannot. I believe coming out of the bye that my Cowboys will beat the Los Angeles Rams, suddenly resurgent Rams, Cooper Cup's back, offense is back, defense not so much. But I believe they will beat the Rams at Jerry World, where very quietly my team has now won 10 straight home games. I'll I'll, even for now, I'll give you the loss at Philadelphia, which will be the following week. Though I still think the Cowboys are a little better than the Eagles because our defense is a little better than theirs. Their offense is facing an identity crisis now of is Jalen a passer, runner? What, what exactly are we under our new offensive coordinator? Then I believe my Cowboys, even if they lose at Philly, will return home to beat the Giants again, go to Carolina and win that game, which they should win, beat Washington on Thanksgiving as they full well should, beat the Seahawks, the dangerous Seahawks, who have the statement win of the year in the NFC at Detroit, but beat the Seahawks, I believe my Cowboys will, at Jerry World. And then if it's time to get revenge over the Eagles, we will get revenge over the Eagles next up. That will get us to 10-3. and It will then be time hopefully through that stretch, to break this chain, this this vicious cycle of media overreacting to how great and how bad we are, but especially, dangerously, how great we are, making us think that we're invincible, 
that we can just roll our helmets with that star on the side out onto the field and the other team will genuflect and keel over. Ain't going to happen. Got to go do it, prove it, win it. So what if we go on then to lose at Buffalo in December, at Miami, so you go from severe cold to severe heat for that time of year? What if we lose both of those? What if the media then says, see, they're frauds, they're mirages, Miami mirages? Good. We'll bounce right back against that very good Detroit team. Some people think they're the best in the NFC as we speak. We'll beat them at home. We'll finish off a 12-5 and season by winning against our arch rival at Washington because we're just better than the Commanders. For once, I'm hoping that the national media still is skeptical, still expresses extreme doubt about the Cowboys, how they'll get eliminated right on schedule as always, early on in the playoffs, whichever round it is, depending on wild card or win the division at 12 and five. I don't know which will be. I'm I'm not sure what will happen to Philly. We might win the division. We might get a home game out of it. I'm just here to tell you that we have always been and will always be products of, victims of media overreaction and media motivation. We're garbage. We're going to the Super Bowl. We're garbage. We're going to the Super Bowl. This has been happening forever. I know Richard and Keyshawn keep, every time I even mention it on air, because that's about all I can get out as a mention, they say, ancient history, get that, you know what, out of here. We don't want to hear about it. No, this is pertinent history. Just remember, for their first 29 years, my Cowboys had a coach, an all-time great coach, who also could not motivate. He was far smarter than Mike McCarthy, but maybe even less of a motivator than Mike is or isn't. I'm talking about the stoic, stone-faced Mount Landry, Thomas Wade Landry, for 29 years. Just briefly, I'll walk you back through it, the highlights, the lowlights. I mentioned to you last week, 1970, our first Super Bowl roll began with us losing at Minnesota 54 to 19. They're garbage. Get them out of our sight followed soon after losing at home on Monday night football to the excuse me then St. Louis Cardinals 38 to nothing 38 to nothing garbage done dead and buried super bowl roll inspired by media over reaction 1978, my first year in Dallas as I came from the Los Angeles Times to become a 25-year-old lead columnist of the Dallas Morning News, 1978. 
October, mid-October, probably started on the 15th or so. Right away, right out of the box. Cowboys lost a Thursday night game to Fran Tarkenton in the Vikings, probably before your time. Fran Tarkenton and the Vikings beat them at Old Texas Stadium on a big Thursday night stage. Followed soon after, 10 days later, by a trip to Miami. Bob Greasy still the quarterback for the Dolphins, who beat the Dallas Cowboys. 23 to 16. That was November 5th, and the sky fell in Dallas. Remember, I'm coming from the outside in. Even though I'm lifelong diehard Cowboy fan, I hadn't experienced from the inside out the media overreaction, national media. The Cowboys at that point fell to six and four. And everybody wrote them off. Get them out of our sight, fraudulent, exposed. Except at that moment, this cub columnist. I was still just a kid. I didn't know any better. But a couple days after the Dolphins' loss, I wrote a column going through every reason, every possible reason that something was, in fact, wrong with the Cowboys. And my final couple of lines of that column concluded, what's wrong with the Cowboys? And I wrote in all caps for my last word of the column, N-O-T-H-I-N-G, all caps, nothing is wrong with the Dallas Cowboys. I had heard a story about what happened in the Miami hotel in which the Cowboys stayed ahead of that lost to Bob Greasy and the Dolphins that Sunday, November 5th. I was also staying at that hotel. I was told that a player I knew very well because I'd covered him out here in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. He's now Deion Sanders' right-hand man on the Colorado coaching staff. His name is Dennis Thurman. Maybe you've seen the video of a speech that he gave to the Buffaloes ahead of their Friday night loss to Stanford. It's a great speech. You should look it up. I think it was posted by Dion Jr. on one of their pages, and it's all over the internet. But Dennis Thurman lecturing the Buffaloes on what it takes to become a winner and a winning football team and ultimately maybe a pro football player. And yet the irony of my story is, Dennis was a rookie that year, a late-round draft pick by the Cowboys. I think he didn't weigh much more than 170 pounds, but he was a first-team All-America safety at USC. Just smallish and not the fastest guy in the world. He just knew how to play football, extreme high IQ. I'm so happy Dion has him in Colorado. Dennis knows, but Dennis has an ebullient personality. He is a 
ball of fire, barrel of laughs kind of personality. And Dennis gets himself ready for games in ways a lot of the old head Cowboys did not. Dennis was all giddy, happy, ready to go play football that morning as he got on the elevator at the team hotel and happened to walk into the elevator with the great D.D. Lewis out of Mississippi State. Had some good old boy in him, but I got to know D.D. very well. Good man. Tough guy. Big heart. Winner. Knew how to win football games. Not the most talented guy either. (laughs) But I was told he took one look at happy-go-lucky Dennis Thurman getting ready for the football game his way. And pardon my language, but D.D. said to him, the rookie Dennis Thurman, the veteran D.D. Lewis, D.D. said to the rookie, get your game face on. And when I heard that story, I got goosebumps because I knew the heart of that extremely talented Dallas team beat the right way. And there was nothing wrong with it that they wouldn't fix on the fly. And did they ever? They got on a Super Bowl roll. They ended up losing to an even more talented Pittsburgh Steeler team. But I looked down on that field, and I'm here to tell you right here, right now, that day that I covered that game in Miami, that Super Bowl thirteen. I looked down on the greatest two-team collection of talent in the history of the Super Bowl. I dare you to tell me I'm wrong. Go, just go back and look at how many Hall of Famers were on the field at the same time for the 78 Steelers and the 78 Cowboys. Terry Bradshaw, one quarterback, Roger Staubach, the other, and then start going down the list of Hall of Famers. I've never seen anything like it. What was wrong with the Cowboys? Nothing. The media just needed to push their buttons, and did they ever. Garbage. Exposed. Get rid of them. Get them out of our sight at six and four. Nope, nothing was wrong. 1985, suffer me this. It's my favorite ever cowboy year. I was there every step of the way. Dennis Thurman was a player on that team because the DBs were called Thurman's Thieves because they picked off so many passes. Everson Walls, Mike Downs, Dexter Klinkscale. Ron Fellows, I was there. That team was fraudulent. That team lost these games, 44 to nothing to the Bears, 50 to 24 at Cincinnati. By the way, the Bears game was in Dallas. 31 to 16 on a Monday night at San Francisco. Every time the national media said, bad team, garbage, get them out of our sight. But somehow, the Cowboys kept stealing games within the NFC East. They went 5-1 and one in the East. Because they would say, oh yeah, watch this, Washington. Watch this, New York. Watch this, Philadelphia. All those major media markets in the Northeast. Watch this. 1992, first breakthrough year for the Troy Emmett Michael Dallas Cowboys. What a year that was. 
one Monday night at Philadelphia. I was there. Randall Cunningham and company beat them 31 to 7, bum rushed them, exposed them, decimated them, embarrassed, humiliated, emasculated the Dallas Cowboys. Garbage! Exposed. At Washington later that year, December the 13th, they lost to the then called the you-know-whats. All I heard for a week was, that's it. These guys are too young. They're still a year away. And I'm thinking, I, I don't think they're a year away. They're, they're that good. They said, oh, yeah, watch this Washington media. Watch this Philly media. Watch this New York media. Here they came. There they went. Super Bowl champs. Heck, 93. Remember that Turkey Day disaster? Leon Letts muffing of the, his, the blunder of, off the block kick in the snow. It snowed in Dallas on Thanksgiving. I don't know how it did, but it did. That was it. They became national laughingstocks that, that day, that night. And that team said, oh, yeah, watch this. Back-to-back Super Bowls. 1995, last time they went to an NFC Championship game, went to a Super Bowl, won a Super Bowl. They lost twice that year to North Turner's Washington, you know what, that went 4-12. and 4-12 and Washington beat this team twice, and it was a dynamo. It was a juggernaut. It was a powerhouse. December 3rd, I'll never forget, at Texas Stadium, Washington prevailed, and I thought, ugh, that was ugly. Yeah, but the score was 24 to 17. They got buried. They got eviscerated. And they said, <laughs> watch this. Motivated once more by the media, although Jimmy Johnson was a great motivator. Sometimes even Jimmy needed some help. It was Jimmy who called our Dallas radio show the night before the 1993 NFC Championship game against Steve Young and company at Texas Stadium and guaranteed victory because he wanted to write a very big check that his team would be forced to cash. He guaranteed victory. Headlines in the Dallas Morning News and the Dallas Times Herald. No, were we? No, we were gone by then. Sorry, just the Dallas Morning News, which had bought and closed what was then my paper, the Dallas Times Herald. You have to understand, as I said, as I opened this show, the Cowboys were invented by a media master, a media manipulator of the highest order. Texas E. Schramm, born out here near Hollywood, product of the University of Texas, but named Texas. Tex Schramm had helped mastermind the coverage of the first ever televised Winter Olympics. This was 1960 in Squaw Valley. Tex knew what worked on television. Tex told me the story of how he even selected in 1960 for the expansion Cowboys, the exact color of the jersey by having a real live TV camera 
rolled into his office so that he could test different hues of fabric on television. So he could actually put it on camera to see how it played on camera. How did it actually translate on camera? They were a media creation from day one, the Dallas Cowboys, because the metallic blue color that he chose was stunning on television. To this day, it's so pleasing to my eye. I'm still infatuated with the color, that color of blue, that shade of blue. Tex chose it by testing it on a TV camera in his office. It was brilliant. How many Cowboy fans over the years, I've I've met them in New York, walking down with my wife, Ernestine, 8th Avenue in New York. Cowboy jerseys everywhere. Hey, Skip, hey, Skip. How about them Cowboys? Hey, how you doing? How'd you get to be a Cowboy fan? Well, it's it's something about those jerseys, that color. I just like the colors. I I like the helmet. I like the star. It's a metallic blue star on the side of the helmet. It's, it's, It's the helmets and the jerseys. It gets them every time. Who fought to stay in the NFC East, even though it was geographically ludicrous for Dallas to stay in the same division with New York? In Philly and Washington, it made no sense. Why wouldn't you put, I don't know, Baltimore in there so that you could just have little bus rides back and forth, right? No, Texas E. Schramm, media genius, knew exactly what he was doing when he fought at league meetings to to stay grandfathered into the NFC East. Why? Because he knew he needed the exposure of the major media markets in the Northeast. He wanted the New York papers to constantly be writing about them cowboys and all the mystique of Texas and computers and cheerleaders. Texram invented cowboy cheerleaders. Pro cheerleaders hotly dressed professional cheerleaders. Never had anything like that before Tex invented them. Tex got it. He knew that he wanted Philly's market to write extensively about Dallas before those two games a year. Washington write reams about Dallas before those two games every year. He fought for and he won the right to stay in the NFC East. It makes no sense until you look how the Cowboys were marketed. It makes no sense until you comprehend how the media has always motivated my Dallas Cowboys or unmotivated them by heaping way too much praise on them. I just hope that right here, right now, we keep winning games just like we won 20-17 to over the Chargers. That's what I need. I need my owner-slash-GM, Jerry Jones, who cannot keep his mouth shut, to discredit the victory, to, to actually water it down, and, and somehow lessen it by saying that he thought the game was disjointed and sloppy by both teams. It almost came across like it, it, 
it wasn't even worth watching when it was wildly exciting, sometimes for all the wrong reasons. Even this week, after my Cowboys survived against the Chargers to get to four and two going into their bye week, Keyshawn and Richard on Undisputed continue to say overrated or chant overrated. Yep, I get it every day. I have to keep hoping against hope that they keep chanting overrated. They keep saying fraudulent. They keep saying exposed. They keep saying bad football team. I keep hearing bad football team every day. And the Cowboys, who do watch Undisputed, need to keep saying, keep thinking, keep driving deep into their hearts and souls that in spite of their deadheaded coach, They'll keep saying to themselves, oh, yeah, Keyshawn, oh, yeah, Richard, watch this. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. First question of today's show comes from Jordan from Buffalo Grove, California. Did you get to SoFi Stadium to watch the Cowboys play the Chargers? Jordan, I did not because I chose not to. Keyshawn wanted me to go. Michael Irvin wanted me to go. I've been offered all kinds of thises and that, seats and boxes and parking passes, the whole nine yards. And I always say, I just can't. As you know, my heart and soul ultimately are committed to undisputed. It's virtually impossible for me to go to a game, whether I'm in a box or out among them, and absorb what's actually happening in the game. People do know who I am. A lot of people actually like who I am, when I'm out among them, I will give back because I love those people for even liking me, for even occasionally watching Undisputed. I love them all. If they want to talk, I'm talking back. I become one of them to a fault. I can't watch the game. If people are constantly asking me, what did you think of that? I lose my focus. I lose my command of what's actually happening in the football game. If I try to to just associate with a few people way up in a skybox, it's literally up in the sky to me. I I can't see. I don't want to stand in a skybox and watch television. If I'm going to do that, just stay home. I got offered 
couple of weeks before this Texas-Oklahoma game, after we had lost, I'm a big Oklahoma fan, we'd lost 49 to nothing the year before, and I just had a feeling it, it wasn't going to be 49 to nothing this time. A friend of mine had a prior commitment. He's got 50-yard line seats for that game. They are position A. He said, you want my two tickets for you and Ernestine? She'd never been before. I used to go as a kid all the time, Texas, Oklahoma, and then I covered it for years as a Dallas columnist. And I miss it. I miss the fairgrounds. I might even splurge and eat a corny dog if I ever get back. It's a great place. It's 50-50 split between Texas fans and Oklahoma fans. To the victor go the spoils. After the game, you get to stretch your stuff around the midway, lording it over those orange-clad fans. It, it doesn't get me anywhere to threaten undisputed by going to Dallas for Texas, Oklahoma. I just can't do it. I don't have the time or the focus for Texas, Oklahoma. I can watch it on TV, and I I love that game. That was the sweetest Oklahoma win over Texas in my life because we had lost 49 to nothing the year before. Dylan Gabriel was sensational. It was a sensational game. It's, It's as watchable a college football game as you will ever see, but I got to absorb it and delight in it to feel sheer ecstasy through my TV way more than I could if I were out among them in the crowd answering questions. What'd you think about that? What'd you think about that? Ernestine gets a little crazy when people are just constantly hounding me. She wants me to be with her and to talk to her and have some focus on her. It's just hard when you're sitting out among them. And it's hard to get back to L.A. in time and to be rested enough to then absorb all those NFL games that are coming right down the chute fast and furious. I just can't do it. I can't go to a Cowboys-Chargers game and get my work done before I go to bed. You know how many hours of sleep I got after Cowboys-Chargers? Not just because I was worked up about the win. I slept for three hours. I have to be up at two o'clock in the morning. I've not been to SoFi yet, but they say it's very difficult to get out of SoFi, especially after a night game. I'm sure the traffic is horrendous. There's no good way to get out of there and get back to our place. I, I don't know. You'd almost have to, you know, maybe we could back road it, but it seems like you'd have to go on the 405 freeway, which can be a nightmare, at least for a little while. My point is, I have to do my social media. I got to tweet. I got to post a video of some kind, whether it's throwing a jersey in the trash or just screaming at the cowboy haters. And then I have to prep. I have to carefully work back through the game and request on the fly each piece of video I need to back up my arguments that I'm going to make to Keyshawn and Richard and Michael Irvin the next morning. And then I have to call my producer, Tyler Korn, and we have to carefully go over what topics might work for tomorrow. Should we do the whole show wall to wall 
on React to this game, which we eventually decided to do. I was on the phone with Tyler for an hour going over different topic ideas, different video, trying to crystallize my thoughts on the fly. And by the time all this was done, I got three hours of sleep. And obviously, if I'd had to drive home, maybe Ernestine could have driven or we could have taken a car service or whatever. Maybe I could have worked some in the car, but it's hard. My point is, all that matters in the end to me is undisputed. It's it's a a huge workload that I I cherish. I jumped out of bed at 2 a.m. because (laughs) I knew that Keyshawn and Richard had better come prepared, as we say. It was going to be no mercy because, as Wayne says every morning in our intro song, we were going to skip the BS and they were going to get it from me straight from the heart, straight from the gut, because I was ready. I was overprepared. And the only way I can get overprepared is to not go to the game, just to absorb it on television. Maybe someday, if I decide not to do this anymore, I don't have any plans. Maybe someday, if I'm not doing Undisputed, I will attend Cowboy and Texas-Oklahoma games. This is Arthur from Stockton, California. The Chargers fan shown on TV all the time, if you watch the game, and I'm sure you did on Monday night, you kept seeing this, this woman displaying extreme passion, positive and negatively. But Arthur asked that, Chargers fan shown on TV all the time. I imagine that's how you were reacting during the game too, question mark. No, it it wasn't quite like that. I was on pins and needles. I thought it was a huge game. I did not think it was the end of the world. I don't think the season would have been over if they had blown the game and lost 20 to 17. But I do live tweet and understand tweeting is actually my salvation. It's my escape hatch. I blow off steam through Twitter. I overreact. I'll be the first to tell you. I hope it's entertaining, if nothing else. But Twitter is actually the receptacle for for my over-emotion. I'm a product of the Dallas Cowboys. I'm part of the media. I overreact like crazy. But I need my safety valve, my escape hatch of Twitter to get my emotions out. So as long as I'm live tweeting, I'm not screaming or throwing things at the TV quite so much because I effectively throw things at Twitter, if you will. I mean, that late muff punt or whatever happened, I I don't know. Jalen Tolbert gets blown up, knocked back into my little punt returner who catches the ball so beautifully, and he should have fair caught that one. He was going to run with it, and all of a sudden the ball is loose, and Jalen Tolbert is scrambling for it. It's coaching. You just got to know you can't touch it. It's Leon Lett all over again, and he touched it, and it was a live ball, and they recovered, and I thought, God, we're doomed and damned again. 
that was the moment in the game that I did scream. My quote-unquote daughter, Hazel, is always asleep at my feet in her little bed. Happy birthday to Hazel yesterday. She turned seven years of age. How time flies. She sleeps most of the game. She ignores my rampaging most of the time, but I screamed off the whatever muffed punt, whatever you want to call it. She looked up kind of through one open eye, like, you okay? And I was like, sorry, I got this. And she was like, okay. And she went right back to sleep. She can sleep through anything, that Hazel. But no, I I don't react like the woman in question that we kept seeing on TV. I think that was real. I think some people thought she was acting somehow, but I read stories. She, she's a diehard. I know the feeling. I'm reacting that way through Twitter. But there is a reason, Arthur, that my wife, Ernestine, will not watch a game with me, especially a cowboy game, because I'm actually acting crazier than that woman ever thought about acting during a cowboy game. This is Trace from Santa Barbara, California. That's a good question. Would you prefer Belichick coaching the Cowboys over McCarthy? You know what? That's That's actually a tough question. I've told you for years and years and years, Bill Belichick is overrated in as much as he's proclaimed routinely the greatest coach ever. That was Bill Walsh, not Bill Belichick. I always give Tom Brady 75% of the credit for the Patriot way and the Patriot dynasty. The problem with Bill Belichick is I give you defensive genius, defensive wizard, great game plan in the first Super Bowl that they won over the greatest show on turf. I give you that. But as a GM, as a team builder, a team runner, he's Jordan-esque, as in Michael Jordan, now the ex-GM in Charlotte, who proved to be the worst GM in the history of professional basketball. I'm the biggest Jordan fan ever, but when it came to picking players through the draft or free agency, I want to talk about a bust. He was the all-time worst. Belichick's heading there as we speak because he rules that franchise with an iron fist. He got away with it for years because he had Brady and nobody else did. He had Brady leading his locker room and telling his locker room, Just ignore him. It's okay. We'll figure it out in spite of him and his old school tongue lashings. Overrated, which brings me to Mike McCarthy. Whoever really rated him in the first place, there's there's no there there with Mike McCarthy. He basically went along for Aaron Rodgers' ride in Green Bay. The last three years were a disaster. There was that infamous quote from a Green Bay insider in a Bleacher Report bombshell. The quote was that 
Aaron thinks has, excuse me, Aaron thinks that Mike McCarthy has the lowest IQ of any coach he's ever had. Duh. I'm, I'm horrified to the point of laugh out loud. Like you can either laugh or cry, but I'm horrified to the point of just laugh out loud at Mike McCarthy's clock management because there, it, it, there is none. It's mismanagement. I, I don't know what happened at the end of the half the other night, except that he just lost it. He lost control of the football game. He didn't know what was happening. He got befuddled. He got overwhelmed. Mike McCarthy did. Please drop the Mike McCarthy. The, the refs pretty much called time for him. They, they anticipated and turned to him like, timeout? Timeout, Mike. It's almost like they're saying, we're giving you the timeout. Eight seconds left. He's got two in his back pocket. They're on the 14-yard line. Obviously, you've got time to take one shot at the end zone. Your quarterback makes nine zillion. I don't know what he makes dollars. He's still one of the top paid. It's his eighth year, not his first year. You do have CeeDee Lamb. I think he's a beast. Richard Sherman says he's a fringy number one, like he's not even a bona fide number one receiver. Keyshawn always says there's something missing, and I'm like, nothing's missing. They threw him seven balls the other night, and he caught seven for 130 yards. Beast. Throw it to him. Give him one shot in the end zone. Just throw it up to him. Let him see if he can go up and beast it like Dez used to do, like Michael Irvin used to do. 14, wait, wait, 14-yard line? You, you can take one crack, Mike, and he just got lost. I just No, I, I don't want a timeout. You don't want, okay, the clock runs down to three seconds. Then you want a timeout? Okay, okay, we got it. And you kick the field goal. He, he gave some nonsensical answer after the, It'd been a sloppy game. He's sort of like Jerry. We'd had a holding penalty. I just wanted to take the safe way out. So you played not to lose, and you still managed to win in spite of yourself. That's that guy. The problem is, if I took Belichick right here, right now, and made him head coach of the Cowboys, his strength is our strength already. Is he really that much better coaching defense, strategizing on defense than Dan Quinn is? I think not. Is he a better motivator than Dan Quinn? I know not. Belichick, not a motivator. He's right out of the Tom Landry mold, stoic, stone-faced. So do do I need Belichick over Dan Quinn? No, I, I don't. Do I need Belichick? to buy the groceries, as in pick the players. No, Jerry actually does a great job of that with a lot of help from his scouts and Will McClay. But Dallas has the talent. I think we all agree with that. So I don't need Belichick to acquire players. So what what would he do except threaten Jerry? Could he deal with Jerry? No. He'd say, get the hell out of my office. How long would that last? A day? I mean, Jerry requires the head coach to socialize with him, to communicate with him, to divulge, to share. Jerry wants to, as he once told me, coach the coach. Think he could try to coach Bill Belichick? No, he could not. Mike McCarthy? Yep. 
Puppet City. Jerry's the puppeteer. It's kind of the blind leading the blind. That's the problem with my team. That's why it, it scares me to death. But Mike McCarthy just stays out of Jerry's way. He lets Jerry have his radio shows and his post-game media sessions and it doesn't bother him a bit because he's just happy to have a job anywhere. It's like Keyshawn always says to me, you know, if, if you do this long enough, and you've been around the league long enough, you keep running into coaches, assistant coaches, and you think to yourself, how did they get their job? I don't know. I've been doing this way longer than Keyshawn played. I, I've said this a thousand times in my career. How did he get a job? I know more football than he does. I could be better at his job than he could be. Network, good old boy network. It's who you know. Maybe they're on the staff just because they're good friends with the head coach and they make him feel more comfortable. Okay, that's fine. They yes man him. That okay, I got it. But are they qualified to beat? No. Mike McCarthy, how did he get his job? I I don't know. Jerry loves him because he just wide eyed with Jerry. Tell me what to do. Put me in, coach. Can't motivate, can't clock manage. But if Belichick were suddenly the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, he would start insinuating himself because he's got a huge ego fed by the national media for years telling him he's the greatest coach ever. He would start insinuating himself into the offense and certainly into the defense, even if he said, I'm going to keep Dan Quinn and I'll be hands off. No, he won't be hands off. So. If you make me choose the lesser of evils, seriously, the lesser of evils right here, right now for this team, believe it or not, is the coach I call Mike McQuandry. Believe it or not, right here, right now, I would take McCarthy over Belichick as the head coach of my current Dallas Cowboys. This is Glenn from Minnetonka, Minnesota. Would the Cowboys be better with Justin Herbert at quarterback, or do you prefer Dak? I've talked about this on Undisputed. I said it the day after the game on Undisputed. It's an old saying about the devil you know. Not that Dak's a devil, but sometimes he can play devilishly three straight times against San Francisco. But I know what Dak is, which is a lot, and I definitely know what he isn't, which is a whole lot at the very highest level. Again, I'm spoiled. I've watched my Dallas Cowboys win five Super Bowls, get to eight. I know it's a long time ago. But I got spoiled, and I remain spoiled, and I don't do mediocrity. As Dion spoke a couple of weeks back after they barely beat Arizona State, Colorado, I don't do mediocre. I, I, don't, I don't have medi- mediocrity in my life anywhere, my private life or my professional life. I just, I just don't accept mediocrity, said Dion. I'm the same way with my Cowboys. Dak is certainly better than mediocre. But again, three straight times at the highest level against a very good 49er team. Stunk, stunk, really stunk. Narrow loss, narrow loss, 
42 to 10. Yet Dak, regular season, is 65 and 38 as the Cowboys' starting quarterback. Think about that, 65 and 38. That's pretty great, but only pretty great. Two and four in the postseason, not good enough. Below average, mediocre at best. But right here, right now, Dak is ranked in QBR, my favorite stat for quarterbacks. He's seventh in QBR. That'll work. Pro Football Focus grades him the 12th best quarterback so far this regular season. It's pretty good. I'll I'll take that. I'll, I'll take it over Justin Herbert. I said from the start. I said it on Undisputed. I tweeted it. Just not sold. I see the height. I see the athletic ability. I see the rocket arm. I think he's got the best arm in football. I think it's a little beyond Josh Allen's arm. I'm talking about rocketry. Every once in a while, he drops back and steps into a throw and just throws a breathtaking rocket of a pass so hard that I don't know how the receiver snags it. And, and controls it and stops it from going right through his hands like with bloodshed. He can wing it, can Justin Herbert. But you saw what happened Monday night. He was throwing a lot of off-target rockets. He is not consistently accurate with his rocketry. Even watching him at Oregon, I didn't see the consistent command of the position. I didn't see the routine poise that you need to be a superstar NFL quarterback. I didn't see the touch, the feel, the control of the football game that you need. He has a shaky head coach, but they do have talent. I know he lost Mike Williams, but they do have talent. I heard it all last week. There's Keenan Allen. Eckler's coming back. And on defense, Khalil Mack and Joey Bosa and Derwin James and Asante Samuel Jr. and blah, 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 blah. I, I got their, their talented football team, but they're shaky at head coach, especially on fourth downs, and they're still shaky at quarterback. I'll take Dak over Justin Herbert any day or Monday night. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is Mitchell from Seattle. Are you still taking Shadur over Caleb Williams? Mitchell, I am still leaning Shadur. I know last weekend was not kind to either one of these young quarterbacks. I know it was basically a lost weekend for both of them. But I'm here to tell you, I watched the first half, Stanford at Colorado, Shadur put on a Heisman performance. Shadur put on a first pick in the draft performance. I know Stanford came in one and five. They didn't look like a one and five football team in the second half. 
But in the first half, Shadur went 14 of 18 for 201 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. And he, just as important, ran the ball eight times for 72 yards. And even though I've said publicly several times, he does not have his daddy's wheels because Dion was one of the fastest players in the history of the game, a 4-2-40 guy. All of a sudden, I'm seeing flashes of, wait, wait a second, not Dion, but he can move. Yes, he can. He's a better downfield runner than Caleb is. Better downfield, sort of a breakaway runner. It was 29 to nothing Colorado at halftime, and I'm thinking, should do it, but the, the national media still is sleeping on Shadur. I think a lot of NFL scouts are still sleeping on Shadur. Then here came the second half. I, I didn't. I, I can't even fathom it. My wife Ernestine's not a big football fan, but she sat with me on Friday night, which is date night, unfortunately. And I said, "I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to turn it off at halftime." I said, "Let me watch just one series of the second half," and then that started happening. And to her credit, she got into it. She started watching it because it was like watching the Titanic go down in slow motion, just sinking, sinking into the sea in slow motion. Shadur didn't do anything awful in the second half. He didn't throw any picks. He didn't get strip sacked, no turnovers, but he kept taking sacks. He kept trying to do the impossible without throwing the football away. He wound up with a minus 41 rushing in the second half because he just, he he took three horrendous sacks at all the wrong times. And they lost in double overtime. That kid, Aomar, excuse me, Ao Manor, I'll get it right, from Medicine Hat up in Canada. I, I don't know where he came from. He looked like Michael Irvin. He'd done next to nothing all year. And then He was unguardable even by Travis Hunter in the second half. I'd never seen anything like it before. But the point was, 24 hours later, I watched Caleb at Notre Dame. And as you probably know, he threw three interceptions, and they were pretty ugly. 23 of 37 for only 199. One touchdown, three picks. QBR was 56, barely over average. They lost 48 to 20. Lincoln Riley said this week, shockingly to me, he was pretty critical publicly of his quarterback and reigning Heisman winner and said all three of those turnovers, those picks, we had wide open people running around, wide open people, said Lincoln Riley. We got to finish those plays. It's a shot at the reigning Heisman winner. I also remind you, it'd be interesting to see what Caleb measures when he gets to the combine. I don't think he's much over six feet. Again, I was a Bryce Young fan, remains so. I know he's in a tough spot right now and he's struggling. He's had his moments, but Bryce is, what, barely 5'10". So, again, if I'm a Bryce fan, I can't knock Caleb for being, might be a touch under six feet tall. He is put together. He's stout. Got those thunder thighs. I got all that. But 
Too often he resorts to backyard football. He wants to escape, to run around, not to run downfield so much, just to run around until he can find an open receiver and make a highlight throw. He is the college Mahomes. Mahomes have been able to get away with it a little more than Caleb has. So I look at their overall stats. Shadur leads the nation in passing yards as we speak at 2,420. That's pretty great. Caleb's eighth. Shadur's at 72% completions. That's pretty good. That's 10th in the country. Caleb's at 70, not bad, 15th. Caleb has thrown 23 touchdown passes this year. That's first in the country. Don't sleep on Shadur at 21, which is third. Caleb's got him in QBR by a sizable margin. It's 12th to 35th. But remember, (laughs) Shadur's stuck on a football team that was 1-11 a year ago. They got thrown together on the fly through the portal. He's played sensational football given the situation into which he was thrust. I'm sorry, I'm still leaning Shadur. This is Theo from Las Vegas. You ever use the lines you talk about, the betting lines, to place any actual bets? I do not, Theo. Used to bet Diet Mountain Dew with Shannon on Undisputed. Now I've just started betting Beverly Hills dinners with Richard and Keyshawn. Eat, eat, eat. But I'm basically betting my pride publicly, and I've told the story once before a ways back, and I'll quickly tell it again. My junior year at Vanderbilt, I didn't have any money. Started betting on football games, all college at that point, because I was covering college football, and I had one huge weekend in which I won all five of my bets. This is way back when. I was betting $20 a game, which for me at that point was like betting a grand a game. Seriously, I didn't have any money. I was barely making it from week to week. I was on full scholarship. My mom didn't have any money. My dad was gone. I was just kind of hand to mouth, but I had the full scholarship. So I had room, board and tuition. And so I got my meals. But my point was, I'm starting, I'm betting money I don't even have, but I hit all five. So I, I won my hundred bucks and I thought I am a football genius in the following week. I bet five more games at $50 a game, and I lost the first four, and I was covering the Vanderbilt game and had bet on Vanderbilt plus 14 at Ole Miss, and I was there on the field at the end of the game when we managed to score a late garbage time touchdown to cover the spread and to save me from having to call my mother for money, and it rocked me to my soul, and that's the last time I ever bet a nickel on anything through bookmakers or online betting. I I just don't do it because I'm obsessive-compulsive. I have an addictive personality, and I know I would be a very potential problem better. But I do bet my pride on national TV on an almost daily basis, so that scratches my itch. I'm already up three dinners on Keyshawn 
and thanks to the Chargers and the Cowboys, I'm up one on Richard Sherman, and that will suffice. This is Ollie from Georgia. What movie do you wish they had made a sequel of? You know, I am a movie aficionado to the point of being a movie fanatic. I study what works, what doesn't. I've never been a big fan of sequels because if a movie is great in and of itself, it should stand on its own. Why would it need a sequel when if you love that movie, you can just watch it again? Because the greatest movies, the more I watch them, the better they get. Casablanca. I can still watch it tonight. We watched it a month or so ago, and I loved every second of it. And every time I watch it, I, I say, oh, I, I missed that before. I missed that before. Chinatown. Ernstine and I love Chinatown. Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway. They did make a sequel, The Two Jakes. It wasn't remotely as good as Chinatown. Chinatown just stands on its own. I could watch it tonight, and I would pick up two or three key little details I did not see the first time. If you move to comedies, Anchorman, one of our all-time favorites, if not the favorite, they tried an Anchorman 2, and it, it wasn't very good. We tried to like it. We just couldn't. I don't need another one. I could watch Anchorman tonight and laugh harder than I did the first time I watched it. I will say this. I mentioned this a few podcast back. I am the biggest Denzel fan, and and I love the character he plays in Equalizer. And I told you, Equalizer 3 was even better than 1 and 2. But remember, it's a one-man show. I know he's going to win. I know he's not going to die. I hope he's not going to die, like James Bond died. 3 is even better than 1 and 2 because it's Denzel. I I know he's getting up there in age, but he can still pull this off. I buy every second of his physicality, his physical genius. He's a bad you-know-what in Equalizer 1 and 2 and especially in Equalizer 3. So sequels, as long as Denzel is up to it, I'm there for four and five if he wants to do four and five. Now, back to one of my all-time favorite movies, the the first John Wick. I know they keep making sequels to it, and I've never loved any of the sequels the way I love the first one. I'm sorry. I'd still be happy if it were only one John Wick. I would be. I'd be just as happy with that. And now I'm going to go back one last time to a comedy. to Caddyshack. I don't know. I've never asked anybody, do you have to know golf to love Caddyshack? I don't think so, but I do know golf. I am obsessed with golf, and that movie gets golf. Caddyshack 2 just might have been the worst sequel in the history of sequels, and there have been a bunch of bad ones. 
I, I don't know what they were thinking, but they tried Jackie Mason in place of Rodney Dangerfield and Dan Aykroyd, and there's a little bit of Chevy Chase, but not enough. And there's no Bill Murray, and there's no Ted Knight, no Rodney. I, I don't need it because I could watch the original Caddyshack tonight and laugh out loud. Between that and Anchorman, I'm not sure I've ever watched any comedy that hit on a more consistent basis. Usually it's about 50-50 on swings and misses on jokes. Both of those are up in the 90 percentile for me. So I I don't know what they're thinking because Caddyshack 1 was lightning in the bottle, the original Caddyshack. I know there are people I've read the the book that came out a couple of years back about the making of, they, they had no idea what they were doing. They thought it was awful. But Doug Kenny, who was the driving force of it, I guess he committed suicide mostly over this because the early reviews were so bad. It's, it's what happens in Hollywood. It's, it's why these movies get rejected by studio after studio after studio, and then they become all-time great. I mean, I I could still watch, you'll laugh, but I could watch The Wizard of Oz tonight because it's just all-time great. It's it's just the ultimate underdog story, and it's so well done, and she is so great as Dorothy. Toto is Toto, and the witch is so scary. It's just just all-time great, and I... I didn't need a sequel to it because I can watch the original over and over and over again. Yet the producers didn't know what they had while they're making it. They didn't get it. She sings Somewhere Over the Rainbow early on out in the barnyard. And they wanted to take it out because they thought they, that it slowed the movie down too much. You could argue the greatest song in the history of movies, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. You you don't even know what you have until it takes hold and takes off and it becomes all-time great. Caddyshack is all-time great. Caddyshack 2 was an abomination. So in the end, now you've got your Godfather sequels. It's just carrying on of the story. It's historical. I, I get that. But when you nail A Wizard of Oz and you nail Casablanca and you nail Chinatown and you nail Caddyshack, just let the original stand on its own forever and ever. Last question is Brian from Utah. If the Cowboys win the Super Bowl, will you wear a Cowboys-themed tie on air? Brian, I've mentioned this before, and I'll say it again. The only way I would ever wear a tie on air is if I lost a bet. Because I have never, ever worn a tie on air in my history of daily television. I did, going way back to my days on Sports Reporters, way back in the early 90s, my days on Prime Monday in the mid-90s, My days with Stephen A. on old school, new school, I always wore a tie because everybody wore a tie. But once I started full-time on cold pizza, 
the man running ESPN at that point, Mark Shapiro, said, no ties, it's a morning TV show, look a little more casual. And I embraced no tie. As the sports cliche goes, a tie is like kissing your sister. I don't play for ties. I don't wear a tie. So to me, a tie would actually be punishment. Even a cowboy-themed tie, it would strangle me. So no, if the Cowboys do win the Super Bowl, and I'm still holding out this weird, strange hope that they will, I'm delusional. You're right. But if they do win at all, it'll go way beyond wearing a cowboy-themed tie. I will get up on the debate desk in between Keyshawn Johnson and Richard Sherman, and I will dance my ass off up on the table for all the world to see. I will dance my ass off right in their upturned faces. That is it for episode 85. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern. The Unundisputed, every week.